Okay, we've got the kids in today, and I've got a fairly confronting question to ask the kids. Have any of you kids under the age of 13 ever killed an animal? Not a bug or an ant, but an, like a, a furry animal, something that has eyes that look at you. You ever had to do that? No? How about anyone up to the age of 40? Put your hand up if you've ever had to kill an animal. Not many. And above 40, how many of you have had to kill an animal? Okay, so it's, it's, it's interesting. It's something that um, sort of d seems to have died out of our society a little bit, the need to, to kill an animal. But when, for those of you who put your hand up, you probably remember the first time you had to do something like that. It makes you stop and think, doesn't it? It's, it's not a really traumatising event, necessarily, but it just is enough to make you stop and think why death is a part of our lives. I've killed quite a few soft furry animals um, <clears throat> and been around the deaths of a few others. We had a fair few pet rabbits when I was a kid. Um, some of them got quite sick and it was more humane to kill them than to let them live out the rest of the disease that they got. Um, Dad was at work, um, so I was left to me and I used the tools I had available and I won't go into the gory details. <laughs> Needless to say, they weren't, they weren't sharp instruments. Um, <laughs> uh, also a few times I've been involved in uh, gutting and butchering sheep uh, at a friend's farm when I was a kid. Um, and there's something just very sobering about being hands-on with an animal so close to its time of death. With the rabbits, it was something like pushing away a small sadness, because they'd sort of been our pets, uh, and explaining to yourself the reasons uh, that it's necessary. And with the sheep, I didn't actually kill them myself, but being hands-on with a warm, limp, heavy animal uh, just made me think. It's a weird kind of feeling that I can't really explain properly. And it's a part of our lives, isn't it? It's something we get used to, uh, the fact that animals die. And not just animals, we die. People we love die. Uh, but there's something about the death of an animal, right, that's just enough to make us consider the meaning of death and the gift of life and what comes after. So we've had our readings, and here we are at church, more than 2,000 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, a man who taught not only that his death was more than just a function of the life cycle, but that he was going to put an end to that cycle of life. No more death. You've, you've probably noticed the Bible's a pretty big book. If, you're, if you've only ever seen the Bible in an app, you probably don't know how big the Bible really is. Uh, in fact, the writings in it were created over a span of about 1,600 years. And Jesus, and all the things that happened around his life, comes right near the end of those 1,600 years. And so there's a whole lot of backstory that applies to all the things that Jesus says and does. Being born in Israel, Jesus was a Jew through and through. Everything he did and said was in Israel. He would have memorised as a child many of the books of the Old Testament. And that was important because nearly all of the Jewish culture was uh, enshrined in those writings. It originated from these writings. It's their heritage story and those writings kept their way of life on track. 
And today, as not Jews, we live in a society that's quite separate from those Jewish traditions. And so there's a lot that we don't really pick up on or understand unless we take the time to look into the Old Testament and learn how the Jews saw themselves and their relationship with God. And that's actually the reason we're doing uh, this series, um, the Foundation series. So if you're a visitor today, here's the backstory for this talk. We've been reading parts of the Old Testament and looking at the, the metaphors and themes that start right at the very beginning of the Bible, but are repeated and developed uh, through, throughout the whole Bible and then ultimately fulfilled um, and revealed in Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And today, as Thomas mentioned, we're talking about sacrifice and those passages that we read. Thomas uh, read the extended versions of those stories of Cain and Abel and the Passover festival. And today we're going to walk through those stories and see how the idea of sacrifice played out in the minds of the Jews and how Jesus fits into it. So let's start with Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. That's where we're going to start. This is the first story that explicitly mentions sacrifice in the Bible. And in the three chapters before this, God created the world, created animals and humans. He gave the humans the privilege of being God's representatives in the world. But as we know, Adam and Eve threw that privilege away and decided to live life on their own terms and reject the instructions God gave them. They disobeyed God, which set humans on a path of self-destruction heading in the opposite direction to God. They were kicked out of the garden God had created for them and they went on with their lives. Um, and here we are in Genesis chapter 4, straight after that, with their sons Cain and Abel. Interestingly, we don't know why these two sons were making a sacrifice to God. Presumably they'd learned something about this from their parents, but there's no other information uh, here at all. We don't know what they were supposed to do or how they were supposed to do it, if there are any specific instructions. And I don't think that's actually important at this stage. I believe this story is simply setting the stage for how we understand God's role and God's purpose for sacrifice in the Bible. All we know from these verses is that God looked favourably on the way Abel came to him and he let Cain know that he wasn't coming to God in the way that was acceptable to God. And being only the second story in the Bible with humans in it, it's an important precedent to note how God reacts to Cain. Cain has done something wrong. He's trying to please God the way he thinks he should please God on his own terms. But if you look at Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. God doesn't smite Cain, curse him the second that he comes to God the wrong way. He comes to him and speaks to him, tells him what's going on, gives him a warning that should have run, run clearly uh, based on his parents' history. But what does Cain do? Does he accept God coming to him, giving him a chance, a way to be right with God? No. Unfortunately, Cain becomes resentful 
bitter and angry about Abel's offering being accepted by God. And he doesn't take responsibility for his own sin, but takes out his anger on his brother. The first sacrifice is shortly followed by a human being overcome by sin and committing the first murder. So that sacrifice clearly didn't take away the sin. God gave Cain a warning and a way out, but Cain went his own way. And when I boil it down to that sentence and ask myself whether that's ever been me, I can immediately think of so many times, even just as a kid, where I was given instructions, a way to not only avoid discipline, but to please mum or dad, and totally ignored it, or just slightly edited it, did it my own way, edit the instructions to suit me. And I'm sure you've all done that at some point too, right? It doesn't end well. It breaks down the relationship you have uh, with your parents or whoever you've um, sinned against. And outright ignoring or doing something else instead of what they ask creates a gap between you that needs to be reconciled. And when we recognise those kinds of situations in our own lives, uh, we can place ourselves squarely in Cain's shoes in this story and recognise that he wasn't just a belligerent numpty with a low IQ who didn't get it, right? God spoke to him clearly and he was just dumb. He was actually just like me, just like us. Selfish and proud and unwilling to admit that our hearts need a cure. Um, and the second passage that Thomas read last week was the institution of the most important festival of the Jewish calendar, Passover. Passover is celebrated around the same time as Easter. The only reason it doesn't line up every year in our calendar is because of funky calendar calculations that have been going on for the, a couple of thousand years. Um, the Easter we all know and celebrate is to remember events that happened in Jesus' life over the Passover week. Uh, but let's stop at another story in between. Between Cain and Abel's sacrifices and the first Passover, there were actually many other sacrifices recorded in the Bible. Um, one of the most famous ones would be the one we read about, um, Abraham being asked to sacrifice his son Isaac. And if you don't know that story, um, God had asked Abraham, like Dad said, to take his son Isaac it was himself a miracle baby, Isaac, um, as a test of Abraham's faithfulness. And Abraham passed with flying colours. Not only was he willing in his heart to give up his only son, but he actually got to the point of tying up Isaac, putting him on an altar and getting out a knife before God intervened to stop him. And as Abraham and his only son were walking up to that altar, Isaac had asked his dad, Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And as a dad myself, I don't know how much emotion Abraham was um, holding back in his reply, but he said, God himself will provide the lamb for the offering. I don't know whether Abraham thought God might intervene or whether it was supposed to delay the conversation with Isaac a little longer till they got to the top of the mountain, but it doesn't actually matter. That line echoes down to us through history and becomes one of the most powerful images that proves the legitimacy of Jesus' sacrifice for us. So up until 
the Passover, sacrifices had been, like Abraham and Cain and Abel's, individual situations uh, between God and his followers. Passover was the first instituted religious ceremony as God began the first official steps of making a nation out of Abraham's family. Abraham's descendants had become a very large group uh, by this point and they were enslaved in Egypt. And I'm sure many of you know this story as well. God asks Moses to go to the king of Egypt and tell him to let the Israelites leave Egypt and go out into the wilderness to make sacrifices to God. In Exodus chapter 5 verse 2, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. After lots more resistance, God sends a very specific set of plagues on Egypt that attack the deity of the gods that they worshipped. The idea was for the king and the, and the Egyptians as a group to realise that this god they'd never heard of, that Pharaoh claimed to not know, was actually the true god, capital G, right? He ruled over everything that they thought... Wait, where have I gone? Ruled over everything that they thought was actually in control of their lives. The Nile River, the animals, the sun, their crops, and finally their fertility and life itself. And here's how the king responded to Moses the last time he saw him before this Passover feast. They just had nine plagues, terrible, devastating plagues, and he was still digging his heels in. And in Exodus chapter 10, verse 24, Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go, worship the Lord. Even your women and children can go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. But Moses said, You must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock too must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshipping the Lord our God. And until we get there, we won't know what we are to use to worship the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure you do not ever appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. And straight after that, God tells Moses about the 10th plague that he would send. The death of all the firstborn people, firstborn sons and animals in Egypt. And God then tells Moses that this plague will make the king evict the Israelites from Egypt. And then God tells Moses, uh, oh, whoops, sorry, reading the same line. <laughs> he also says the Israelites will be under the same curse unless they follow very specific instructions, which we read, to sacrifice an unblemished lamb from the, from the sheep or the goats, a year old male, eat it, roast it, and take the blood and cover the, above the door and by the side doorposts of their house. And it would be because of that blood that they put over and around their doorways that God would pass over, right, pass over, pass over their houses and spare their firstborn. And the lamb is a substitute in place of the firstborn. And it all happened just like God said. The Israelites celebrate Passover every year to this day. To remember the way that God freed them from slavery in Egypt. And like I said earlier, Jesus celebrated this very festival 
It's a very big part of the Easter story. It's the reason they could catch him and kill him because he was in Jerusalem for this festival. The Israelites were given lots of other laws and institutions by God, which included other kinds of sacrifices and offerings for sin as well. Passover was just the beginning. God gave the Israelites a special privilege, being able to have a relationship with God. You think about all the other tens, hundreds of thousands of people in the world at that point who didn't have that opportunity. It was a very special thing. God provided ways for them to recognise and deal with the fact that their hearts were by default in rebellion to him. And I think the thing that stuck out to me the most from these stories about sacrifice in general is that God is the one who provides people the opportunity to come to him. We are separated from God by our actions. It's our own responsibility, but God gives us ways to be with him, to communicate with him, have a relationship with him. He provided the opportunity for Cain to make his heart right before letting sin take advantage of him. He provided Abraham with the opportunity to show his faith in God with a sacrifice, but even then God provided Abraham with a substitute lamb so that Isaac wouldn't have to die. And then in Egypt, the firstborn sons and the animals were going to be killed, but God provided a way out, a substitute lamb whose blood covered their house and protected them from the inevitable judgment. At first glance, without all this thinking and study, these stories of animal sacrifice might seem to reflect the practice of animal sacrifice that happens in a lot of places around the world. But after looking at these stories today, I hope you can see that they're actually very different. We aren't creating death to feed a hungry God or distract him from our own sins with the smell of blood or something like that. He's actually the one who comes to us and gives us a way out of our own unmanageable, self-created mess and provides a substitute for us. And most of you will recognise how these stories match up so closely as pictures of the Easter story. Jesus, the Son of God, killed at the time of the Passover festival about 2,000 years ago. He predicted his death for quite some time before it happened and he even taught why it was necessary. Mark chapter 10 verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And his disciples weren't under any illusions in the decades following either. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, it says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The stories in the Old Testament are a reverse picture. God had always intended 
for Jesus to be the true sacrifice whose blood would be sufficient to cover our sins permanently. And it wasn't an afterthought. That's why stories like Abraham and Isaac and the Passover line up so perfectly with the details of Jesus' sacrifice. It's not a happy coincidence that Jesus uh, orchestrated uh, to make it sound the same. It's because that's what God had planned forever. After Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, someone wrote a long letter to the Jewish Christians. It's called Hebrews. Uh, the author, we don't know the author's name. The author draws on so many of these themes that were part of Jewish culture and belief and shows how they all tie to Jesus. And the language is pretty clear in this passage, so I'm going to end by reading this large chunk of Hebrews chapter 10 and let it sit with you to think about. But the last thing I'll say is if you're not a follower of Jesus here today, I pray that God will open your mind and your heart to hear these words that I'm about to read directly from him as a loving, merciful God who is slow to become angry and overflowing with steadfast love. He's offering Jesus Christ to you as a perfect substitute to save you from the judgment that's coming because of your own sin. Let's read Hebrews chapter 10. Since the law of the Old Testament has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality of those things, it can never perfect the worshippers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshippers, purified once and for all, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in the sacrifices... There is a reminder that reminder of sins year after year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, as he was coming into the world, he said, You did not desire sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then I said, See, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, God. After he says above, you did not desire or delight in sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law. He then says, see, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He's now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For after, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After those days, the Lord says, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Now where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. 
Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for coming near to us to offer us a way out of our own rebellion against you. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, who was crucified and shed his blood as a substitute for ours, to take away our sins, to wash us clean, to give us hope. And thank you that you have exalted Jesus high above any other name. Thank you that he is worthy to be worshipped and that you have made us his sons. Uh, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.